Hey lovelies, before we get started, I wanted to remind you of all the different ways you can get your hands on one of my designs. Impact Fashion is a line of size-inclusive, modest clothing available in sizes 2 through 24, soon to include sizes 26 and 28. We are so close to the first styles coming in stock in those sizes. I personally design and pattern every single piece in the collection so that it is fitted to perfection and every single piece runs the same. That means that once you know your size, that is your size in every single piece in the collection. Pretty cool, no? You can shop the collection online at impactfashionnyc.com. Shipping is totally free in the U.S. and the return policy is fantastic. You have 30 days to make a decision and don't even have to pay return shipping of any sort or any kind of annoying restocking fee. Impact Fashion can also be found at the address at American Dream Mall. The address is a curated modest department store and definitely worth a visit if you are not an online shopping type of person. The American Dream Mall is located right next to the Meadowland Sports Complex in New Jersey and to get to the address you're going to want to park in lot C level 3. Make a left when you walk in and you'll see the address on your right. I'm always happy to chat, whether that's to answer your sizing questions or just get to know each other better. Find me on Instagram at impact.fashion.myc or on WhatsApp status at 516-953-9391. You can also email me. It's rifky, R-I-V-K-Y, at impactfashionnyc.com. One quick note on this episode before we get started. I have no idea how this happened, but the audio on my guest is a little funky. It sounds, I thought it sounded like she was in a fishbowl. So I hope that you will forgive me because bad audio really bothers me. Um, but I hope that you will uh, forgive me and still, still, you know, focus on paying attention on what she has to say because it is really fantastic. Enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Rifki Itzquist, and on today's show, I sit down with a storyteller and convert to discuss her journey. She shares how she came into her own as a writer, her experiences interning at The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, meeting her Jewish husband and working through his pain with religiosity, and why she thinks it's important for Orthodox people to make art. Laura Lobel and I could not come from more dissimilar backgrounds, but if you were looking at our lives today, you would not know that. As someone who grew up Orthodox, I've always been fascinated by those who stumbled upon or even sought out this lifestyle, and I was honored Kylie chose to share her journey to Judaism with me. I was very shy and introverted. Uh, I spent a lot of my time alone because my sisters were four years older and ten years older than me, so... Um, they kind of didn't want anything to do with me at that age, which is totally normal. Um, and then also my parents got divorced when I was five. So I ended up spending a lot of time alone, but also at the same time, I was very inquisitive and I, I was pretty mature for my age because I was, since I was put in that position, um, you know, being mostly with my mother at that age, I would make websites devoted to Britney Spears all day long. <laughs> and I don't know if anyone remembers Angel Fire, but that's what I would do all day long. And and I loved it. So I was always shy and quiet, but definitely had things going on, you know, in my inner world. So did you like, did you, did your inner world ever explode like into the outer world or was it just things that you kind of kept to yourself? 
So it was through writing that I really, you know, found myself and expressed myself. Um, I couldn't really communicate well. You know, I like if someone in my friend's group at school was louder than me, I'd get shy and be like, I can't handle, you know, I can't go up against that, but I can write. And so one, once I was in, uh, I think that fourth grade, I joined my elementary school newspaper, Cougar Tracks, and started writing about things going on at school. And that's where I, I started to shine and people started to take notice. And yeah, it's just always been that way. I've become more extroverted over the years, but it's through writing that I've been able to do that. When I'm, I'm so interested that you've become more extroverted because I feel like usually people go the other way, or at least I think I did a little <laughs> bit. But do you, like, was that an intentional thing that you did? Did you feel like you should be more extroverted and therefore adjust your personality or did it just kind of happen? So two things happen. One is that my theory is that people are introverted when they're not comfortable around the people that are there. So for me, I've always been more comfortable around Jews, converted. I'm sure we'll get to it. But um, like all my friends growing up from high school on were, were Jewish. And around them, I could always be extroverted. I could always be myself. But around like other people, you know, who I didn't feel so comfortable with, yeah, I would just like clam up. Um, so that happened, just being around people that I was comfortable with. I felt free to express myself. And then the pandemic, you know, I was, I was introverted more so before then. And then just spending all that time alone in the house with my husband and child and not being able to go out and see friends. And I just really was like, when this is over, I'm getting out there again. And I did it hardcore and I broke down. I'm like, I really need face-to-face -face human interaction to be healthy. Most of us do. I think, mm -hmm. I think all of us do, actually. You mentioned, you know, growing up around, around non-Jews, and then you um, had converted. So I'm, I'm, this is what we're going to spend most of the time talking about. Um, as someone who has grown up Jewish and Orthodox, you really don't come into contact with that many converts. It's just not something that I don't, there really aren't that many of them, I don't think. Um, or maybe they're, maybe I'm just sheltered. I don't know. Um, but I'm curious, did you, did you, like, as a kid, did you always feel like you were different from the people around you? Like, was that, did it, did you always feel separate? What, what made you want to even, I can't wrap my head around, like, if I would just wake up today and be like, I'm going to be a Christian. Like, I can't wrap my head around that process or, or how that happens. Talk me through, uh, talk, talk me through your story. How, how did all this come out, come about for you? Sure. So I was born in Kearney, which is in Baltimore, Maryland. That's kind of on the east side of the county. And there it's like a general population. Uh, my school was very, very diverse, white people, black people, Asian people, like uh, my friend's group was super diverse. And I always kind of gravitated towards the more nerdy kids <laughs> on Freaks, like if you watch Freaks and Geeks definitely one of the geeks um mm. and yeah like the popular girls would make fun of me because I wasn't you know wearing juicy sweatpants and and you know I wasn't so interested in boys until later on so I just never fit in with them and and then so I felt different in the way that you know I didn't fit in with what was kind of the mainstream of 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 girls around me um, I wasn't giggly. I didn't want to pass notes in class. 
I just never connected with it. And and that's really tough when you're younger because you're like, there is no other way. Like those girls are the standard and I have to be like them. I have to be like Ashley and Brittany and Tiffany because those are all the names back then because I was born in the 80s. So uh, yeah, never fit in with them, found my friends group. Um, but it wasn't until, yeah, I my mom moved us to... Uh, the west side of town near Placeville, very Jewish. Went to a public high school that was also a magnet school. So it's it's kind of different. You had to apply to get in. And then it was an art school on top of that. So everyone there, suddenly, I was with all the freaks and geeks. <laughs> like the first day I got to high school, there was a girl running around with a fake tail on her and like <laughs> kids dressed up, you know, with like patches on them and red hair. And I was like, yes. And I... I found my people and then when I like all my friends were Jewish and that wasn't an intentional choice it's just who I clicked with and ended up dating a Jewish guy and uh, his family is very nice I went to them for Passover Seder so yeah that was kind of my introduction to it and I once I met them and once I went to the high school I didn't feel different anymore um in college I I kind of went back to feeling different because that high school was just a magical experience. And in college, I, again, was a loner. And I didn't really relate to the people around me. And that was when I met my husband in my senior year of college. So the the theme that I'm picking up on, and I'm going to try not to go too therapy on you for a second, but it seems like when you were hanging out around, like, all these Jewish kids who just happened to be Jewish, it just, like, it just felt right. Yeah, so I grew up um, in a, my mom's side is Catholic, and then my dad's side is just, I don't know what they were, maybe Protestant or something. It's I'm not so good at the differences, but it was always very quiet and stoic and no talking at the dinner table and just put your napkin on your lap and be quiet and push all the problems under the rug. And I was always like sitting there like, you know, I want more. Like I, I felt like the feeliest person in the room because I just had these big feelings and I couldn't express them. Like in high school, you know, when my hormones are changing, I became very, very depressed. And my mom just kind of shrugged it off. She didn't know how to deal with it. And so, but when I met Jewish people, they were just free to express themselves. It was just a totally different culture of, you know, talking over each other for better or worse. But like they were... They were louder. They were more vibrant, full of life. Um, they liked musicals. <laughs> you know, it was, they were just, yeah, it was just a completely different kind of culture shock, but in a good way from what I was used to. So I was, I, I just want to be part of that. So what happened when you met your husband? So we met, I was in my senior year of college. I I was kind of sick of college at that point. I was like, just get me out of here. I just want to go out into the world. Mm -hmm. um, I had just finished interning at The Daily Show. And my friend, With um, Matt, who was a comedian. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> Is he a, yeah. like nice? Yeah, so, so he was nice the few times I saw him. But... His staff were not so nice. It was a very cutthroat environment. Like everyone came from Ivy Leagues and, you know, we would be doing these errands and doing these tasks that we were supposed to be getting paid for. Viacom later ended up being sued for millions of dollars because they were making their interns do these tasks that they should have been paid an hourly wage. Mm. But so we were Oops. doing that. And at the same time, like, 
Yeah. <laughs> At the same time, no one was really so nice. And like, I would cut up all these like bagels for the writers and present them nicely. I'd walk in and no one would even look up. No one would say thank you. And that's just how TV and show business are. And for me, it's just very sensitive. And um, I, I did not do well in that internship. I didn't get a good grade. And at the same time, because I felt like I couldn't speak to any of the other interns and be like, hey, are you guys also not liking this? Because it's like, if you do that, you're not going to get a job there as a PA. And like, you just don't want to do that. So I felt like the outsider there. And I was very, um, very self-conscious the whole time I was there. So then in the month after my internship ended, I went to a comedy show to see my friend Maddie, who was leaving for Los Angeles. And it was like his put together roast for himself of his comedian friends. And while he was there, I overheard someone talking about how they interned at Colbert Report and hated it. And I jumped in. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I interned at The Daily Show and I hated it. <laughs> and, and that was that was my husband, Danny. And we both connected. It's like they they were not nice to us and they didn't want to talk to us and we could never tell anyone that we hated it. And finally, you know, we connected over it. And then, like, I also felt butterflies in my stomach. Like I never, like looking back, it was a real like romantic movie moment. <laughs> that's fantastic. I didn't so, know that at the time. <laughs> yeah, no, that's your meet cute right there. Mm -hmm. So, so the two of you meet, you bond over share terrible experiences at Viacom, which later lead to legal action on other people's behalf. <laughs> and, um, and, and you start getting to know each other. Yeah. So then I had gotten my, <laughs> so, okay. So then he, he ran a radio show called comical radio. He was one of the first person to start comedy podcasting and podcasting in general in 2004, which was like when it first came out. So he started this radio show and he did really well with it. Um, he had interviewed George Carlin and like all these big people over a thousand comedians and I was bored in my senior year and Maddie, again, our, our mutual friend was like, why don't you intern for Danny and like help him with his radio show? And I said, okay, that sounds really cool. And that'll be great on my resume. And at this point, based on the way that Maddie's talking, like you're not dating. No. And I had just been burned in a relationship. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, it's okay. It was for the best. I, um, and yeah, I, I was not looking for love at all. So yeah. So I started interning for Danny cause he could use the extra help. And like my first day there, I was like taking Chris Hardwick up to the studio and I was like, I watched you on MTV when I was a kid. It was, it was pretty nuts. And, and then Danny and I started connecting, but I didn't want to say anything because it would have been highly inappropriate because like I was interning for him and I didn't know how he felt. So I I just we just kind of kept going like that for a few months and I was getting a lot of great experience. Like I booked um I booked amazing people on a show and then and then I got an internship at the Onion for the summer after graduation, which is my dream internship. And suddenly I had nowhere to stay in New York City after graduation. And Danny and Maddie had lived together. Danny said, Why don't you just stay with me and pay Maddie's rent. I said, okay. Um, moved in after graduation and then we started dating that night. <laughs> so <laughs> we've never not lived together. Um, I tried to move out. I was like, this probably isn't healthy. He's like, nah, it's all right. <laughs> just stay. <laughs> and that was 13 years ago. Wow. So at one point, did it, I'm assuming that that Danny is Jewish. Yes. 
So at what point did the fact that you were not Jewish like become an like I don't want to use the word issue, but that's the only one that I can think of. And also like and again, I am the most sheltered when it comes to this. My understanding is that like you can't convert like to be in a relationship like that's not how that works. So like what at what point was it like, okay, we have was it okay, like me and Danny are meant to be together. So therefore I need to figure this out. Or was that like a separate kind of thing? How talk me through that whole aspect of all of this. Sure. So I just give you a little bit of background on Danny. He grew up in a mixed Ashkenazi Sephardic home, but went to Sephardic synagogue growing up. But then his school, his parents were conservative, as in conservative Jewish. Um, he was born in New York City in Queens. Then they moved to Long Beach, Long Island, and suddenly the school was Orthodox. How? Hebrew Academy of Long Beach. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they were they were kind of conservative, but then the school was modern Orthodox back then. Now it's more to the right. Um, but yeah, so you know, that was, that was kind of confusing. Like it was also pretty Ashkenazi. So he was like Sephardic Moroccan and shul, Ashkenazi Sephardic at home in school. He was like Orthodox. Like his parents were trying to figure it out too. Like at what level, like they had a kosher home and did Shabbat and everything, but he wasn't like the other kids really. Um, since his parents were also kind of all chuvas. So he grew up a little confused, but he was always spiritual as a kid and like would always be really strict about kosher when he was a kid he told me and and basically he had a really great experience at how but then when he got to high school he got kicked out because it was like a yeshiva that was trying to be a college prep school and they kicked him out for bad secular grades and no other mm-hmm. yeshiva believed that he got kicked out for bad secular grades because that wasn't a widely done practice they assumed he was on drugs or had done something really heinous to have that happen so he got shuffled around to um like a really bad yeshiva that was just starting and like all the kids were like drug addicts or like really bad like he would be trying to daven in the morning which means praying and they would be throwing spitballs at him making fun of him so we just stopped praying and he stopped being religious because they're making fun of him which is crazy because it's like an orthodox school um eventually he went to public high school and it just felt very freeing at the same time he kept wearing a baseball hat so he could cover his head which is a custom jewish practice for men in place of a yarmulke right yeah and so because public schools normally are not allowed to wear a hat but so he kept doing that and then once he graduated high school went to israel and i came back and he tried to like fit in with upper west side you know sephardic synagogues and no one would invite him over for shabbat and he just felt very rejected. He couldn't find his place in the community. Same time he started doing comedy and he had to perform on Friday nights. So just slowly over the years started to unravel. And by the time I met him, he was saying he wasn't like completely off the derech, which means like off the path or like going away from. It means like not, religion. not, not observant basically. Yeah. Yeah. So he was, he wasn't eating bacon, like, but he was eating like not kosher chicken with cheese and like, things like that like I guess lesser offenses quote-unquote but right I, I want to pause on the nuances here because that's such a wonderful example that you point out so in <laughs> in kosher the like the exact Torah prohibition in kosher involves meat 
and milk, like meat and milk products. And it's like specifically like cooking an animal and its mother's milk or something like that. And so chicken is like a lesser to have chicken and because chicken is not like a beef, like a like a meat. It's a poultry. It's a it's a it's a lesser offense. And it's so it's funny. I, I, don't, I don't know if funny is the right word, but it's it's interesting that like that's where he would draw the line, that he would have like a chicken parm, but not a cheeseburger. Yeah, so he saw a cheeseburger as like a different line to cross and certainly not bacon. And he would never, like one time he accidentally ate shellfish and he became very allergic to it and his throat swelled up. So yeah, when, and, and also he would say things to me like, you know, it wasn't a law in the Torah and the Rambam just made, <laughs> the Rambam was a Jewish, you know, a great Jewish a rabbi. rabbi. Yeah. Uh, a Jewish rabbi, what am I saying? <laughs> As opposed rabbi, to the other rabbis the floating around, yeah. you know, you know, the other ones. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was like a fence. It was in, in Judaism, there's laws and then there's fences around those laws. So he, the Rambam said, you know, because chicken looks like meat, people might get it confused for me. He said, we got to cut this out. No chicken and cheese. So yeah, so when I met him, he wasn't keeping Shabbat. Uh, he was performing on Shabbat on Fridays and Saturdays, um, wasn't keeping kosher mostly, and he just he just had a really bad taste in his mouth from it because he never fit in. It seemed like the community didn't even try to do outreach to him to keep him in it. And so he'd been dating non-Jewish girls aside from me before he met me. And when we first started dating, we were so broke because we were young and in New York City. He was doing stand-up comedy. I was interning for free and just doing like side gigs for money. And one day I had like six dollars in my bank account and I was like, oh no, what are we gonna do for dinner? And he's like, Well, I know a place where we can get a free dinner. It's called Chabad. Mm -hmm. And I said, What's Chabad? <laughs> <laughs> and he took me there for Friday night dinner and I met the rabbi. It was like a guy in a black hat like I was like this looks like the guy from Annie Hall and Woody Allen's like with the anti-Semitic grandmother and he was the rabbi was very nice to me and I loved the dinner it was such a warm environment and like everyone at the table is super diverse this was in North Williamsburg Brooklyn which is very dirty so there's a lot of hipsters there and artists and then the rabbi and his family and Danny and I and I was amazed that they treated me so nicely, even though it was pretty obvious I wasn't Jewish. And the food was amazing. And I loved the speech, even though I didn't really know what he was saying. And it just like looking all around and I just felt this warmth in my chest that was indescribable. And I kind of became obsessed with that feeling. <laughs> and I kept urging Danny to take me back there. And that's kind of how I got started. So what... A lot of people, you know, who talk not not really so much about the the conversion process, but about like a a balchuva process. So people who are Jewish but not observant, who then become more observant, talk a lot about this like the Shabbos meal experience and like how going to a Shabbos meal was like really the thing that made them start thinking that this is a type of life that I want to pursue. Was it was it kind of similar to? to like was that was that also your your experience or was it something was there something more there was there something different there what was it specifically that made you feel like oh this is something I need to look more into well it was kind of like what I was saying earlier where dinners with my family would be you know if we even had dinner together at the table which was very rare um 
usually I was just eating in front of the TV alone. So I was surrounded by all these people and they were laughing and again, talking over each other and like debating. And I just love the energy and just the warmth that the kindness from the rabbi, like I was, this is free and I'm not even Jewish. And it's just so nice of them. Like why? <laughs> I couldn't wrap my mind around it because I'd never been treated so nicely before in my life. So there was just something so magical about it. And then Danny took me to his parents for Friday night dinner. And it was like, his his family was like a comedy movie <laughs> like just it was just like again like any movie I'd seen about Jews like going out to eat or something like it just was that it was funny it was interesting um people were so lively and there was so much food and food I'd never even heard of like his mom brought out Turkish delights I'm like what is that <laughs> you know like growing up as like a person of German, Irish, English origin. And I ate, I, I would just eat like Wendy's, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, I didn't know. She put the mint in the fruit and like, there was so much food. Like in my home, it was like a bag of carrots, some cookies in the cabinet. And then yeah, I'd get like Wendy's or something. But this was like, felt like 13 courses. <laughs> It, and honestly, it probably was if you were going to a Shabbos meal. It, um, how did Danny feel about this? Like he had his own experiences with yeah. orthodoxy. And here you are becoming like more interested in Judaism. Were you specifically interested in Orthodox Judaism or just like what? How? where did you fall on the spectrum at this point? And how was this? I'm sure that this was kind of like weird for him, no? Yeah, so I'll answer the first question, and that was, he'd had a few spiritual experiences before we before we got together, so the first was that he always went back home, even though he wasn't observing, he always went back home to Long Beach to go to his Sephardic synagogue for Yom Kippur, and they would um, go to the beach and pray during Yom Kippur, and it was, it was always an incredibly spiritual experience with him, like seeing the sunset and like talking to God, you know, right before the fast is over. And he said, okay, God, I'll keep one Shabbat this year. So that was a little while before he met me. And he forgot about his promise. And then he ran into that Chabad rabbi that he took me to on the street. And the rabbi invited him for Shabbat. And Danny's like, okay, I'll go. And then he didn't end up going. And then again, he ran into the rabbi. And the rabbi's like, okay, you're coming for Shabbat. And Danny said, okay. So by the time I met him, he'd gone to this rabbi a few times. And he loved the rabbi, Rabbi Shmuley Lane of Pabada, North Brooklyn. He would always tell him jokes. He was just very personable. And he's a very warm and friendly man. So he had had those. And then when I was interning for him, afterwards, I found this out. He like had a night out and maybe was slightly tipsy. And like he told me like he sat on the staircase of his apartment and looked up at the stars and said, God, please let Kylie like me. And so when that panned out, he was like, he'd had, he'd been coming back a little bit to his spirituality. But when I, I was, I was an atheist, you know, I had decided God didn't exist because I prayed for him that, to him that my parents wouldn't get divorced and that my grandmother wouldn't die. And like, they happened anyway. So I didn't see any miracles. I thought the Bible was nonsense and that people who believed in religion were stupid and just fooling themselves and that life was just, you know, it's here and then nothing, eternal darkness. <laughs> so that was my position. 
And then once I went to the Chabad and I felt that feeling, I just felt it was so spiritual and that was such a spiritual experience. And then the more I learned about Judaism, it just made so much sense to me, all the laws and things like that. And I, I told Danny one day, sorry, let me back up. <laughs> it's a long story. We, we were um, hanging out one time and the issue came up where if he ever did get married, which he didn't want to, it would have to be to a Jewish girl. And I just freaked out. I'm like, okay, well, I don't want to get married right now. I'm only 21. I said, why are you dating me if there's no future? He's like, well, I don't want to get married anyway. So that made me even more upset <laughs> that he wouldn't even want to marry me anyway. He just didn't want to have kids or anything. But I loved him and he loved me. So while that upset me, um, we stayed together somehow through that. And then once I, I decided, you know, I'm going to start looking into conversion, he said there's different types of Judaism. There's Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox. And he said, Reform, you know, it's not going to be enough. Like, I grew up Reform. Orthodox is too much. I don't want to be Orthodox. So why don't you go to a conservative conversion? And I had no idea what any of this meant. So I did. And I tried with two different rabbis. The first one was like going to charge me $100 a session for learning, which I just couldn't afford. And um, I just didn't get a very good feeling from him anyway. And the second one told me he wanted to convert me until I was ready to get married. So that was really disheartening. And I couldn't even start learning in the meantime. But he said to me, you know, go to the 92nd Street Y. There's a program there and you can go and learn about it. So I did. And that was uh, Rabbi David Kao, who's an Orthodox rabbi. At the same time, I told him I wanted to convert. And he said, OK, so look up Orthodox, look up synagogues in your neighborhood. I didn't type in Orthodox. I just typed in synagogue into Google. And the Greenpoint Shul turned up. That's in Brooklyn. And that was a more modern Orthodox synagogue. And I went and... And I brought Danny and he freaked out. So from there, he kind of um, questioned the rabbi, was very upset with the rabbi, told him his whole story, said, I don't want to be Orthodox. I don't know why she dragged me here. And he just kind of like went off the rails. And at the end, the rabbi's like, I totally understand. You know, what happened to you was horrible. And I wouldn't want to be Orthodox either if I was in your position. I And then he just kind of said, you know, I think this is a beautiful lifestyle. Now that you're an adult, you can choose it if you want. And I think if you just start praying, you know, every day, if you can, maybe you'll start to like it again. So if you want to ask me a question from here, I feel like I've been talking forever. No, you're, this is, no, you, first of all, it's always a great episode when I don't talk, but the, <laughs> the, what, basically what I'm hearing is, is that through your, it sounds like you were exposed through him and then through him being Danny and then and then once you were you were exposed to like this whole concept and and lifestyle, then you brought him in more. Then it became something that you kind of did together and kind of worked through his experiences that he had had, which are lots of there are plenty of Orthodox people who have similar experiences to what he did to, you know, to his. And then and, and you kind of worked through it at the same time together. Yeah. And. First of all, it's a very strange thing when you think about it that, you know, a guy, usually it's a man that this applies to for some reason. Man goes off the derrick, off the path, and then he goes with a non-Jewish girl. 
And then suddenly they have to become Orthodox again. But it's like, he wasn't Orthodox at all a second ago. <laughs> right. So, because, and the reason that Orthodox is chosen um, is because it's more widely accepted form of conversion than the other forms. So if you convert Orthodox, Reform and Conservative will accept you. But if you convert Conservative, only Reform and Conservative will accept you. And like, it just keeps kind of going like that. And then even within Orthodoxy, there are, as I learned, because I converted twice Orthodox, there's different levels, and some are accepted in Israel by the rabbis there, and some are not. So it's kind of gets into minutia and politics a little bit. But um, yeah, so another thing, another catch was that he was a stand-up comedian. And if he became Shomer Shabbat, technically you could perform on Shabbat if you walk to the gig and you don't touch the microphone and this and that, but it was just a very non-Shabbat atmosphere, you know, not spiritual atmosphere to be in a club with a bunch of drunk people at 2 a.m. on a Friday. Also hearing other comedians be, a lot of them are blue, which means like filthy, <laughs> especially right. when they're first starting out, a lot of people are. So you could technically do it, and but you'd be breaking the spirit of Shabbat. So he was very worried about and, and was like kicking and screaming a lot not fit, not literally but in his head because if he became observant again he'd have to give up stand-up comedy and that was very difficult for him i i can only imagine especially because that's the type of career that's so hard to get started and to be working so hard to get something like that started and then all of a sudden have this like freight train come in that's just like oh by the way you can't do this on friday night and that's when all the good gigs are and that's when you're going to get discovered and that's how this is going to become a career that's really tricky yeah so that was really hard for him and he was doing really well like he was on this american life and had showcases with comedy central and the comedy cellar which is like the most famous comedy club in new york city so yeah and he was you know incredibly funny the first time i saw him i it was like it was again kind of like going to Chabad for Shabbat. I was transported to another level. Like when you see good stand up comedy, you're just transported to another world. Just how hard you laugh. <laughs> and after he got off stage, I was amazed because he was in this basement performing for like 30 people. And I'm like, you should be in a stadium. <laughs> you know? So that was really hard for him because we both knew that he was amazing and he was going to make it. And at the same time, I was kind of like putting the the kibosh on that. Now I wasn't, I was still helping him and I actually became his manager, his publicist trying to help him. But just that big logistical thing of not being able to work on Fridays and holidays really uh, put a dent in him. I'm, I'm sure. I want to circle back for a second. You mentioned quickly that you had converted twice. So like I said, super sheltered over here. So I'm going to ask some several dumb questions. Uh, my understanding is that uh, Jews and particularly Orthodox Jews that we are like, like we're not evangelical Christians. We don't really care if like more people join or not. Like we don't go and like seek out more members, I guess, for lack of a better word. Um, and that in and that we generally discourage conversion. Was that your experience as well? Only in the conservative um, with the Orthodox. No, the Rabbi Rabbi Marie Sappelbaum actually had. <laughs> Funny enough, because most Orthodox schools don't have this, but he had a conversion class already going on and he told me to join it. And that was just like a miracle because that doesn't happen. Um, so yeah, I, gosh, 
Oh, did I get discouraged? Sorry. Um, yeah, only with the conservative where he told me to come back, you know, in a few years when I was ready to get married. Otherwise, I was never rejected the three times or anything, especially not from Orthodox. Um, but yeah, I learned later on that, you know, my conversion was not accepted in Israel, even though the American Orthodox rabbis did accept it and knew that, you know, it was legitimate. Right. And and then also, I want to just circle back to this, like, a problem, I guess. That feels wrong, but whatever, of you having been in a relationship. Because mm -hmm. I always had heard that you can't convert if, like, you can't convert to, to marry someone. Is that is that just not true? Am I just misinformed? How does that side of this work? Yeah, so I would have, Danny and I almost broke up multiple times over um, the fact that I was converting Orthodox. <laughs> And at the time, you know, I pushed for us not to, <laughs> because I, I was like, this, this is not where our story ends, you know? Um, and so I, he would always ask me when this was happening in our dramatic fights, you know, are you going to keep converting? I said, yeah, I'm going to keep converting. So I'm not doing it for you. <laughs> I'm yeah. doing it for me. So there, I always say people like he was the one who got me started on it, but I'm the one who you know, I did it for myself. Like I did it because I believed in it. And I, I saw that it was the truth, my truth. I saw that it was right for me. So yeah, if we had broken up back then, he might've split off and gone, you know, secular again. I don't know. Um, I'm glad it didn't happen. I really fought for us. And like, I always knew somewhere, even with all the drama that came with this and how he didn't want to come back to orthodoxy that, we were meant to be together and I was going to try to accomplish that no matter what. And thank God, because today it's very funny. Like it's not funny, but a lot of couples like over time they get, they go from like very in love to like not. And ours was, we've always been very in love, but it was very tumultuous just because of our past, our past and because of this conversion process. And now it's like, our marriage is incredible, thank God, and we're very mature now, and we work through everything, and it went from really tumultuous and dramatic to, like, not at all, <laughs> and thank God, and I, I, I say that's because we have, we're more religious now, and I believe that helps so much. You mentioned the, the belief side of this. You mentioned that you had been an atheist. You mentioned, you know, you're using a lot of phrases that we hear a lot, like you saw the truth of it. It felt right to you. Talk me through that side of it and because I think I'm I don't know that this is 100% true but I think that a good chunk of the people who listen to this show have a similar background to mine in that they grew up orthodox and that means that you grow up with just like certain just facts like we sing as kids Hashem is here Hashem is there Hashem is truly everywhere like like there are just things that that you that are like it's like gravity they're just kind of there and I, and some someone with my background, I think, has a little bit of a different struggle of how do you relate to these ideas as an adult when you've only ever heard them as like a, t a kindergarten song. And I'm curious, what was the what was the belief evolution, I guess, how like what what there was obviously must have been a very strong conviction here for you to upend your life and your relationship to go ahead with it. So what what was that process like? Sure. So first of all, I always found that when I started learning Torah, it calmed me down. And I was someone who always suffered with anxiety, depression. So I love that. I love the community aspect because I was also a lonely kid. 
and just being around people just made me very happy and like people that I felt comfortable talking to. Um, aside from that, Judaism had sophisticated answers to my simple reasons for not being, not believing in God. So I, as, as I said earlier, I would say, oh, miracles don't exist. Like there's no Noah's Ark today. So obviously it's all made up. No one's ever seen anything. In Judaism, <laughs> you can say finding a parking spot is a miracle in Judaism, which it is, which is it what is. I do now. You know, like, and then you start hearing all these stories of, of other bigger miracles that happen. And so I was like, wow, I guess miracles do happen. And then you learn the, they're not always satisfying they're much more satisfying than the alternative, which is why does bad things happen to good people? And Judaism's explanation, which was, you know, we just don't know, but, you know, we don't know what comes in the afterlife. And we, you know, we we do believe in, in an in afterlife, but we don't know, like, exactly what it entails. And so, like, the reason my, you know, my grandmother died so young, you know, I was praying for her not to, and she still did, you know, you don't know why that happened and and you just have to believe and it is kind of like the rabbis do talk about like gravity like you know it's there but you can't see it and like that's kind of how I started relating to God like I didn't know uh I couldn't see him but I knew he was there and then like once you become a parent it becomes super relevant to your life because they say like it I don't want to like downplay anyone's you know a turmoil but sometimes it's like if a baby's crying and you know they shouldn't have a bottle yet because it could hurt their stomach or something and you withhold the bottle and the baby's crying and doesn't know why you're not giving her the bottle <laughs> then that's very tumultuous with the baby but you know you're their protector and you know that I'm going to give you the bottle at the right time and I'm going to come for you at the right time or give it give you whatever it needs so, so that doesn't mean we should stop crying out and praying in the meantime um, I do think it makes a big difference. So just it, I also love learning in general. I, I love going to school and Judaism just presented so many opportunities for that. And then one thing that I and every other convert you'll hear is that you'll hear from is that we love the questioning. Whereas like other religions, I loosely grew up with Catholicism and there's no questions. It's like, this is how it is. Judaism like people would be at the Chabad or in my conversion class and asking like really personal borderline, even offensive questions to the rabbi. And they, you can ask anything, you know, there's nothing off limits. Um, and I really like that. It just seems so open and, and the laws made sense. It made sense that Judaism was the origin story for all these other religions. Cause one thing non-religious people or non-believers will say is that, you know, oh, they just all come from the book of Gilgamesh or anything like that, or the, they're all the same, they all say the same thing, but the fact that Judaism was first, the fact that Judaism, the revelation was thousands of people and not just one person alone on a mountain or in the woods, you know, that really, that really convinced me. Um, the fact that, you know, the Torah talks about the pig and and how would anyone who wrote that know that the pig was the only animal in the world like that when describing kosher laws and just too much of it was like 
this is obviously from God, <laughs> you know? And then once I started believing more in God, once I started, when I was an atheist, I thought I have the control over my life. If I have a bad day, and if I have a bad day, I wake up on the wrong side of the bed, it's going to be a horrible day. I know it. And it would play out that way. But when you become, you know, when you, when I started believing in God, I was like, okay, I'm in a bad mood today. You know what? I'm thankful. I'm awake. I'm thankful. I'm breathing. You start your day with gratitude and then it plays out that way. And the more that I invite God into my life, the more that I thank him, the more I see these little miracles all the time and I'm breathing or whatever, the more I'm able to overcome whatever bad thing or negative thing is going on in my head. And when I go say, you know what, it's not in my control. It's in God's hands. And I know it's for the best, the better my life has gotten. So that is to me like the biggest proof, you know, like the more, the more faith you have in God that he's running the show, everything is for the best, even though we don't know what the best means and it may not seem like the best, then the better everything is. Right. I'm curious about how your family reacted to all of this. Did they care? Was it, was this like offensive? Were they cheering you on? How did they feel about, you know, this, this journey of yours? Yeah. So my mom and dad and two sisters aren't religious at all. I'm not even sure, sure if they believe in God, but um, the first reaction of my mom was like, well, that's good because you'll get a community. And I know you, you were like a lonely kid because she worked all the time and I was alone at her house, a latchkey kid. Um, my dad was always encouraging. He is like, he always watches Holocaust movies and reads articles about it and always sends me it. And it's not my favorite thing because I okay. just cry immediately. Yeah. <laughs> but he's okay. really. He's well, really works fascinated for him. with it. I mean, our society is very fascinated, Jewish and non, but even non-Jewish with World War II and the Holocaust because right. it's such a big thing. Um, for me, it's just too difficult. Like I, even when I walk into a Holocaust museum, I just start crying immediately. I, it's really same. hard. Tishbaab yeah. is like the, the worst. Yeah, no, same, by the um, way. I don't, I don't yeah. like... I, I don't do Holocaust movies or books or or anything like that, especially when I think like my grandmother, who I knew very well and I was very close with is a survivor, was a survivor, I should say. And I was just like, no, I don't want to think about this. I'm really not interested yeah. in thinking about like systemic annihilation of my people. Thank you very much. It's yeah. Yeah. I'm I think you when you one. don't, when you don't have family with it, like my father doesn't have any family with it. his dad fought in World War II. But um, yeah, it's kind of easier to deep dive into it I guess right <laughs> but, to like remove um, yeah. yourself yeah yeah it's just kind of a part fascinating part of history I suppose um but yeah so him and my sisters were always okay with it there are like they think it's strange that I won't like turn the lights on and off on Shabbat and that I <laughs> spend so much money on kosher food and try to explain <laughs> it and it's like it is very hard to explain unless you're in it. So I understand that. We have a lot of laws that are very like weird. You know? Yeah. 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 I never <laughs> try to explain the mikvah to non-Jews. I'm like, just yeah. don't worry about it. Exactly. Like it don't <laughs> everybody's fine. Everyone's good and like really don't stress. Um yeah. yes, that's a very good strategy to take. I'm curious. Yeah. So so you have your conversion. You have, you know, how far apart were your two conversions actually? So the first one I did before I got married in 2015. And then I tried to get it certified in Israel through this organization that helps out converts. 
and they it just wasn't and it's not that my rabbi was not orthodox enough or whatever it's just for some reason i don't know the politics of it there's only four baked in which are like you know the courts rabbinical courts that are accepted in israel so i said 40 right 40 40 from the u.s got it. i think um so then once i found that out i just in case I want to make Aliyah, which is I want to go to Israel or my kids do or anything like that for like weddings and funerals and other religious type things. If you're, if they have any problems where the rabbis in Israel say, you know, you're not Jewish, this is not legitimate. Like I just didn't want that. <laughs> so I, when I was um, pregnant with my first daughter in 2019, I went into the mikveh again when I was eight months pregnant seven or eight months pregnant um so yeah that was my second conversion and it's it's they called it the gold standard because it's certified in israel and and also i i like that i did it that way because back in 2015 i was not as observant as i was in 2019 even as i am now so it was actually a really good stepping stone because each time matched my level of religiosity and the rabbi i did it first with i really enjoyed and he was like very he was modern and he was just very open and non-judgmental and, and then the second time I did it matched my level of observance at that time. Yeah, I can hear how that would be super helpful. So after, let's say after either conversion, really, did you feel like, like, how did your life change afterwards? Did you feel like things were different? Were you immediately accepted into your community? Did your community really change? Because I know that, you know, I know, I know that you wrote this book, um, that was for the children of converts to kind of explain the situation to them. Was that born out of experiences that you had? No, I was accepted the whole time, even before I was Jewish. That's one thing that everybody gets wrong about the Orthodox community that we're so insular and this and that. The Orthodox were the nicest. I love how even the actually... folk people are like, oh, there's no way anybody was nice to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, we're the harshest exact on the Exact opposite. No, the... Honestly, the worst experiences I've had were um, like someone who's very secular said to me, a man, Jewish man who's very secular said to me, why are you covering your head? Why are you going to let a man tell you what to do with your head? Take off that hair cover. I'm like, aren't you a man telling me what to do? <laughs> like, no, I'm going to wear this $1,500 wig if I want to, sir. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> are you a man telling me what to do? Oh. so it was I mean yeah I I've heard maybe like two offensive comments in 13 years from orthodox people yay us yeah I'm actually uh, shocked I'm gonna have to like think on that a little bit as to why I'm shocked at that let me let me tell you something though I did it in Los Angeles and Los Angeles is an amazing orthodox community it's mostly Balchubas so that might make a difference because we all came from kind of a similar background, but I'm not going to put down other Orthodox communities because I'm part of like a lot of them on, on social media and everything where I interact with a lot of Jews from the East Coast and Israel. And also the same thing, very welcoming, very few negative comments. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And so even, I mean, I would walk in Satmar Williamsburg because that's where we would get our kosher meat. Mm -hmm. And I would mostly feel fine. It was mostly like my inner voice telling me like, oh, I look so different. But, you know, this guy one time before Shabbat, this very Satmar guy, 
we like were rushing to him like oh my gosh the deli's about to close before shabbat we need to get meat and he's like hop in my minivan and like <laughs> took us to the store and so normally we don't get into strangers cars but i i hear why you did <laughs> i i hear it yeah, yeah. it's uh, yeah it's I got to think on why I, on why my head went there. That's, that's for my own self to, to discover. Talk to me about writing this, this children's book that you wrote, which is such a sweet story and really like breaks down the conversion story, I guess, for lack of a better word for little kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I wrote it uh, Jewish, just like you. I actually wrote it bef- and had it illustrated before I even had my first child. And the illustrator and I came up with together that it would be a little blonde girl. And then I ended up having a little blonde girl as my first child. My second daughter is like brown hair. So it's not even, I don't know. Uh, what's it called? Hashkata, Hashkata <laughs> not very good with Hebrew. Where you kind of speak. You got it. No, that was exactly it. Hashkacha practice is when it's it's like the the belief that there are no coincidences, basically. That God watches over every little detail, yeah. including the little blonde girl in your book. <laughs> yeah. So I um it's mostly about, you know, when we are around my family or when the children of converts are around non-Jewish family members, like how do you react? I want I want my daughters and other children of converts to be firm in who they are and their beliefs at the same time respecting where they came from and their non-jewish family members and their traditions and saying you have yours we have ours we're all people we're all human we're family and i love you and i can you know be at your house when there's like a Christmas tree and not participate and have my kosher food, but, and also knowing who I am um, and respecting you at the same time. That's just, you know, I don't ever want us to become so insular that we're like, oh, we can't interact with non-Jews, especially family members. Cause that's, that's, I think a problem. Like we need to be out in the world and we're a very small minority and Orthodox are a minority within a minority. So we need to be able to respect other people's cultures and traditions and still go out there and know who we are so that our values will not be corrupted. I love that. I'm so curious. What does Danny do now? He does a lot. Um, so thankfully for, because of the more so creator economy, um, he's kind of shifted his whole career to be like 10 different things. So one thing he does is he took a school bus and he converted it into a podcast studio called the Podcast Bus. So he does his own oh, podcast cool. there. Yeah, which is Modern Day Philosophers. It's comedians talking philosophy. And he also takes the bus around and records podcasts for business owners. And the advantage is that like, if you want to record a podcast, you can do it at home or you can go to a studio or um, you can hire the podcast bus to come to you. So that's number one. He also makes comic books about his life. And he's like one of the very few, maybe, maybe there's like three Orthodox people in the like secular comic book world. Um, he does stand up for Jewish gigs. Like we did a Pesach program in Vegas. Um, special with his record company, Stand Up Records, and made a documentary called Reconquistador about going back to Spain, performing stand up comedy and tracing his Sephardic roots. And it was wow, very... that is so cool. Where can I watch that? 
I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you. And if anyone listening wants to hire Danny to come out and do stand up and, you know, and to play the movie, even on Zoom, we'll do that. Um, Cause we're touring around to different organizations, but yeah, he's very proudly Sephardic. And that's like also another minority. We are in a very Ashkin normative <laughs> right. Orthodox and Jewish world in general. So it was very important for him and it's very fascinating because Spain is still like there's pig legs everywhere. And that was done for a reason because they wanted to get the Jews and the Muslims out. And that practice still goes on today. And they put pork in everything. And they, um, you know, they said Jews could apply for Spanish citizenship in 2015. And, and I think something like 80% of the applications got rejected. And then Barcelona just cut ties as an Israel sister city. Madrid stepped up. I always like Madrid better. And they yeah. stepped up and like said, no, we're going to keep this tie. We'll be sister cities with Tel Aviv. But yeah, so there's still a bunch of anti-Semitism there. We went to Chabad for Friday night dinner. We had to have uh, IDF soldiers, Israeli defense soldiers with machine guns walk us from the Chabad to the rabbi's house for dinner. And it was also like questioning, like, what's your Hebrew birthday? What's your Hebrew name? This, that. It's crazy how it still is perpetuating from 1492 to now, not on the, that level at all, thank God, but it still hasn't resolved still anti-Semitism, so. Right. It's, I feel like we should just mention the way that you and I connected, because otherwise, because it's just such a fun connection is that you have this um, agency uh, called Cold Digital Marketing. Um, and a couple of previous podcast guests have af- actually been people that you connected me with. Uh, and we were actually talking about some other guests and you were like, oh, by the way, I have this story. Would you be interested in telling it? And I'm so glad that we got a chance to to do that. And I there's also there's a part of me that's so happy I don't know if that feels like the wrong word it feels cheap but whatever that you and Danny are still using the skills and the talents that you had before now just in like a Jewish focused way in an orthodox focused way and and we're happy to have you both I guess I'll I'll speak for orthodoxy for a minute (laughs) one thing I'm happy about and I really push for it is for Orthodox people to make art because we're a, our our community is like go and be a lawyer or go into finance or be a rabbi or whatever it is or for women OT or a teacher or like there's certain careers and we don't encourage them to go to the arts but the arts are such a huge part of society and they can change society and if we go into the arts and we have a voice then we can stop all this nonsense with Netflix taking us down and you know. <laughs> Right. We have to but, tell our know, own stories. We have to tell our own stories. And that's really a passionate thing. And it's my goal to get positive stories about Jews and Orthodox Jews into mainstream media and arts. And if somebody wants to learn more about you, where can they go? Colddigitalmarketing.com or Google me. I'm always wasting time on Twitter. So you can catch me there. <laughs> so easily accessible. Yeah. Last thing I want to ask you, Kylie, what does it mean to you to make an impact? What it means to make an impact is to leave the world a better place than when you were than before you were born. And to make the world a better place, you can make a negative impact or a positive impact. And I choose a positive impact. And I hope that, you know, I hope that the mitzvot I do, the good deeds I do, I hope that they live well beyond, you know, my time here on earth. I love that. I, I think they will. <laughs> I, I think so too. Thank you so much for coming on today, Kylie. I really appreciate it. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Kylie or her husband's work, the links are in the show notes. On last week's episode, I spoke with Mary Grunhouse of Mika Fashion about her label and her husband's illness. Listen to it wherever you're hearing this one. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of Impact Fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are currently in stock in sizes 2 through 24 and coming in size up to size 28 very soon by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 18 people listed by Ora Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getorit.org slash recalcitrant-parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses. Original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Itzkowitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.nyc. As always, here's to making an impact together. <laughs>